I want to preface this episode by saying that we recorded it back in early February before this COVID-19 crisis really struck. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy and practicing social distancing while running. And it was the Badgerland Striders, and they had just undergone a name change, having formerly been the UWM Track Club. They kind of became to the go-to organization in the Milwaukee area during that first running boom, which I would say were late 60s, throughout the 70s, and most of the 1980s, for putting on uh, local quality run races. That was Richard Dodd, and this is the Cream City Pacers. Welcome to episode 17. I know we haven't released an episode in over a month, but we are making up for it with a great interview with a local running legend. Richard goes way back when it comes to running in Milwaukee. Richard and I were talking before the show on some potential topics, and he sent me a list that included 32 talking points. Because when you have been running in Milwaukee that long, and you're on a Milwaukee running podcast, there is a lot to talk about. For Richard, it all goes back to high school when he found running. He set the school records in the mile, the two mile, and the three mile. He qualified for the Boston Marathon at the age of 18, and he co-founded the Firecracker 4, with his twin brothers and a few friends, which is still a Badgerland Strider race. He's met and ran with legends like Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter. Him and his twin brother own the state record in the 50K at 2 hours, 59 minutes, and 56 seconds. Yes, they tied the race. He also coached Jess Hepner, who is on episode 2 of the Cream City Pacers. He also coached her to her first marathon as well. He's a lifetime member of the Badgerland Striders. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel named him the state coach of the year for cross country. After all these years, Richard's still running, he's still racing, he's still coaching, and as of late, he's co-founded Ethan's Run Against Addiction. We talk about all this and more on the episode. Hey, Richard. Welcome to the Cream City Pacers. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Good. How are you? I like your tan. So Richard just got back from a vacation in Florida. Correct. I'm super jealous. Kind of questioning why I came back. But. Yeah, I know. While you were gone, I think I was like running and like trying to do my long runs in like some terrible snow. And I was like, Richard right now is just living life in Florida. And I was in South Florida. So it was in the, in the low to mid 80s every day. Oh, did, did you get any runs in? Actually, not a whole lot. I was with my girlfriend, and we did a lot of walking. Um, but, you know, as crazy as it sounds, coming from where we have it, it was almost too warm to run. It, unless you did it, like, right in the morning after you woke up, it didn't happen. But we just wanted to relax and have fun. We did a lot of walks and nice, no sightseeing, run, what no, have you. No running, no running. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I mean, I got a knee that's... Got in these little tweaking here and on. I'm nursing a little bit. I'm taking a little bit of a break. I raced really hard last fall, yes. December, and I think I just need a little bit of a break. I totally understand the break. I feel like when I go on vacation, right. I always get lured into running. My wife loves running, so that's fine. So I always enjoy it. But um, did you know, before we get in, this is a fun fact for listeners. You right. are the third person on our show. This is like our 6th, 17th episode um, to be... Well, you're the first twin on the show. Okay. You have a twin brother, but Jessica's a twin. Jessica's a twin. She has twins, right? And then Vince Ventrano, 
TMJ4 news anchor has twins as well. And I have twins. This show, I feel uh, like... Lance just, Allen from Channel 4 uh, news lead has twins. They go but to he Franklin was, Middle School. He was not on the show, though, so we have to exclude him. But there's a lot of twins going. I feel like we just draw in. If you're a twin right. or have twins, you're just drawn into the show somehow. There's well, in like Jessica's case, I think it's really unusual because she usually twins skip a generation. You know, I hate to generalize, but... And not only did she have twins, but she had boy-girl set of twins, and she's a boy-girl. That's even crazy. Twins. There's you know, just the, twins the everywhere. Twins, 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 twins right. everywhere. Anyways, I um, so to start jumping in now after some fun banter, you, in my mind, are a local running legend. You go back to like some of the first, like the Badgerland when it just trans, uh, transferred names to the Badgerland right. Striders. So Badgerland Striders wasn't always the Badgerland Striders. And you were kind of, you started being a Badgerland member at the age of 17, correct? Right. I, I ran one of their races in May of 1977. It was the old Mayfair Marathon, but they had the smaller race, so to speak, was called the Mayfair Mini Marathon. You know, what, like how far was that Mini Marathon kind of things? And, yeah. You know, it actually was 14.6 miles. and. It, Oh, it wasn't even a half? Yeah, why that distance, nobody knows. I think it was just like three loops around the parking lot and then down and back the Underwood Parkway and then back to the parking lot. It was 14.6 miles, so that's what they called it. But I did that, and I was still 17 years old, and somehow I averaged under six minutes per mile and got second in my age group. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, my high school racing had just ended that very very same week, and then I decided, oh, I think I'm going to be a road racer here. So I... I wanted to know who put this race on, and and it was the Badgerland Striders, and they had just undergone a name change, having formerly been the UWM Track Club. It was a bunch of uh, graduated UWM runners that decided to keep their running going and formed this group, and it, it eventually mushroomed and grew exponentially, and they renamed it that year in 1977 to the Badgerland Striders to more reflect the whole state and not just UWM-Milwaukee graduates mm-hmm. on the running scene. That's so cool. And then you became a part of uh, the group. Do you know right. like what number member you were? I do not know that exactly, um, but mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously we're talking pre-computers, pre-internet. How many it people? Was you word think of mouth. Were? There was. It grew large quite quickly. There it had to be it had a number in the hundreds by then. Oh, so it was a pretty good size right. by then. And they they started putting on races. They already had established the Cudahy Ten. That race started somewhere in the nineteen sixties if not 1959, possibly. So um, they kind of became to the go-to organization in the Milwaukee area during that first running boom, which I would say were late 60s, throughout the 70s, and most of the 1980s, for putting on uh, local quality run races. And so I started uh, competing in a lot of those race events and then getting more involved in the club as far as... um, being a club officer, uh, starting a race myself with my twin brother and, a, and another Badline Strider member, we started the Firecracker Four, and our, it was our, our high school teammate Jim Jagger. So it was three high school teammates from Whitnall High School. We got this harebrained idea to start a road race in our hometown in the winter of '78, '79, and. We called it the Firecracker 4. I stole the name from NASCAR because they had a Firecracker 400. And <laughs> I knew that four miles was the farthest we could circumvent Hales Corners w- without having to cross Highway 100 or Janesville Road. So we, we called it the Firecracker 4, and we decided to have it on the 4th of July. And again, that was 42 years ago, and here we are 42 years into that race, and 
as of last year, they still averaged in the uh, vicinity of 1,200 runners per year. That's so my crazy. Of when corners. you guys put it on for the first year, like how many people showed up? It's a, it's a good question. We expected 250, and, we, and so we ordered 250 T-shirts, the old snail mail way, and then we, we had 450 runners at first event. And that, that was the clear, first clear sign to me, and that, and that was July 4th of 1979. Whoa, that, that's huge. The running boom was in full full force and then the next year it was in the 700 750 range and then by the year three it had already grown to a thousand runners and we were teenagers living in our parents homes collecting all this mail the old conventional way and trying to sort this all out as college students and we had to give it up we gave it up to the local running stores after that third year but for whatever reason that that race has lasted 42 years now, and, and it's always attracted a very high-quality field of runners because we used to get our fellow college runners to come run the race. And, you know, it was one of the first – that and Al's run were two of the first very competitive local road races, and they've persisted to this day. Yeah. Well, is uh, the Firecracker 4K older than the Cudahy Classic? Uh, no, it is not. Cudahy was actually started, I think, as a USATF 10-mile national championship, and – I believe it dates back to either 1960 or 1959. So, that, so that's not actually a Badgerland like started race. Bad- well, it was the UWM Track Club, I think, that started. Oh, so they did start it. it right. Wasn't, I didn't know if they kind of. But it, and it wasn't always in Cade. It's actually been at about three different sites, I believe. It, it used to be along the lakefront in, in Milwaukee, and then uh, I think along South Shore. It was somewhere in the seven, 1970s, I believe, that they moved it to uh, its present site at Cade Sheridan Park. That's that's crazy. I can't believe that you guys started the Firecracker for uh, the Firecracker, four K. Why am I saying it wrong? What's it called? Firecracker four mile. Four mile. 4K. And it was, there was it was the only four mile race of its kind. And there still aren't very many, yeah, but no, it was not. just unique. There was a lot of five Ks, ten Ks. How was it celebrating like the Fourth of July? Was it was there always a good time around the race? I, I believe so. You know what. Um, we probably didn't think of this or intend this at the beginning, but a lot of, a lot of uh, young people that grow up in Hales Corners, they move away and then they come back for the holidays. So they they would run it with their families. It became a really big family affair type event. And, and you know, for me, it's I I often volunteer at it, but sometimes I'll jump in and run it again, even to this day. And it's always very gratifying to me to see how many runners come out and enjoy the holidays, kick off their holiday early that way, have a little fun, and then go off and do their family things. And of course, for me, growing up in Hales Corners and and currently living there now as well, I waved all my old neighbors and my neighbors, my friends' parents that are sitting down by the end of their driveways cheering the runners on. It's just a really warm, friendly, uh, fun family experience. The idea of it, you said like, you know, people come home for the 4th of July. That's kind of a, a thing you come back for, right? Right. It's, it's, uh, it's the summer version of what like a turkey trot is, and it's way nicer in the summer, so it's way more fun to do it. Well, yeah. agreed, and I think it's, a, it's almost like a family reunion time. For yeah. A lot of kids that have moved away, they come back because their parents still live in Hales Corners of the surrounding areas. Yeah, definitely. It's, That's cool. That's cool that you were, like you created it. Right. 42, later, 42 years later, it's still going on. Right. Like, and I don't know. Those, that's pretty cool. Do you, do you like reflect on that a lot? And you're like, hey, like, I had the hand in that. I started that. Oh, for sure. And, I, and um, a couple of summers ago was the 40th annual, and, and I even got a proclamation from the village of Hills Corners, which meant a lot to me because it's, it's the village I grew up in. 
you know, my hometown, so to speak. I was born in the city of Milwaukee, but uh, the first house that I lived in as an infant was Hales Corners and graduated from Whitnall High School right in town there. So, I, you know, it's, it's neat for me as well, but it's especially neat to see the kids that I've coached at Whitnall High School mm-hmm. and kids that I grew up with, kids that were never runners maybe in high school, but now they've turned to running in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. They're still doing it. Yeah. They come back, they visit the families, they run the firecracker floor. It's just part of a great day in the village of Hales Corners. And, uh, you know, as a, as a Hales Corners native, I'm very proud to be a part of it. I think that's so cool. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit. How did you get into running? You started the firecracker 4K, but that's cool. But let's go back in time a little bit. So right. you ran in high school, right? Correct. Well, uh, my twin brother and I, there was no organized uh, running for grade school or middle school at that time, at least not in Hales Corners. Um, we're talking the early 1970s here. And the running boom was just kind of getting started with the 72 Olympics. The Americans had a lot of success there. And um, so people, distance running started to become in, um, in people's wheelhouse and on their maps. So um, in 73, I was an entering freshman at Whitnall High School. And, and the thought of the day, especially for young men, was you got to go out for football. You're a guy. You know, it's a guy thing. And my twin brother and I were very undersized. We were like five, barely five feet tall, 100 pounds, dripping wet. So, But we went out for football because that's what freshman boys did. And uh, we had never even heard at that point of cross country. We, we wouldn't have dreamed of going out for a sport like that. So we went out for football. We got clobbered. But I will say on the, on the third day of freshman football, unannounced, we got there. We had, they said, we're all going to run the mile with, with helmet cleats on. So we got on the track, which was Cinder. Cinder is kind of a old-school dirt track. Mm-hmm. And we had to wear our cl- football cleats and our helmets and run the mile four times around. Yeah. And for me, you know, and I still think about to this day, it was really the first time I had ever run that far in my life, a whole mile. But um, it was the first time I really felt free. And, and you know, they fired up a pistol and we had like 60 football players on there of all shapes and sizes. And, and I just took off and I started running. And by lap two, I could see the tail end of, you know, the linemen and some of the runners, mm-hmm. bigger guys that weren't quite as fast as me. So I started catching them and lapping them. My twin brother was not far behind me. And, you know, I wound up winning the mile, so to speak, in freshman football. I got, I think I got the game ball for the day and everybody clapped for me. You know, to be honest, I probably should have quit that day and joined the cross country team. I was going to say, you should have just kept running over to cross country. You know, I wasn't raised a quitter, so I, I, I endured a football season that was brutal and miserable because I was so small. But, but, um, word of kind of got around and, and I had the track coach was my English teacher and for freshman English and he encouraged me to come out for track and I did. And, and, and so that would make it the spring of 74 is when I truly became a runner, started running the mile and freshman track and I had a lot of success right away. You know, I, I, um, again, this is a sport I did not do growing up, but it, and my twin brother was the same way. It was, it was sort of like we just fell off the turnip truck in 1974 <laughs> in the spring and became outstanding distance runners and we never could have dreamt it or imagined it but but it happened and and um we're incredibly grateful for it because we were we grew up in a dysfunctional home alcoholic dad you know I, things were not good at home we were probably hales corners was a growing affluent suburb in 19 in the 1960s we were mm-hmm. probably the poorest family in town at least we perceived ourselves as such we grew up in a duplex 
family of seven. We did not own the duplex. We rented. And, you know, my twin brother and I think at that age were looking for an escape. And if, if, it wouldn't, if we wouldn't have stumbled upon the distance running and that near instant success that we had with it, it you know, it would have been drugs, alcohol, what have you. It was the 70s, you know. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam War had just ended. Richard Nixon had just resigned before getting impeached, you know. Um, uh, the drinking age was lowering at that time. And drugs and alcohol were rampant. It's not like we could, we couldn't have gotten involved in those. We, we didn't really have the money for it, but where there's a will, there's a way. But gratefully and thankfully, we stumbled upon distance running, and that, that became our drug of choice, you know, and and we took off with it. And you were, you were like you said, you were good at it. It's interesting that you said, you know, running wasn't a thing back then. Like now, like when I grew up, it you know, you kind of had all these choices in school, in elementary school, middle school. You were you run the mile in elementary school, right? You do it in middle school. Right. There's all these options, but it wasn't there then. And you just happened to find it because right. you ran the mile at football. And then you transitioned over to the track and cross country team. And you were, like I said, you guys were fast. You had, you set some right. school records. Right. And I, even by sophomore, my sophomore year, I went up for cross country. So it was my very first year of cross country running. And Right off the bat, I was our number two varsity runner, and then our number one varsity runner got hurt mid-season, and I became our number one varsity runner as a, as a sophomore, again, in my very first year in the sport, and and got the co-MVP award at the end of the season with the, with that uh, senior that had been hurt, and then won the, co- the MVP awards the next two years. And by the end of my sophomore year, I was nearing school records in track, and then junior year, I set several records junior and senior year uh the mile two mile three mile and again they weren't great times um by uh today's standards and, and maybe not that day's standards but it, but it went high school it was, it was a smaller school back then and and all the records stood like for 25 years so i records are uh, records yeah and, you know and I, I always yours. thought the records are made to be broken and i mm-hmm. uh, one one really a uh, heartwarming thing for me was when the records did get broken, I was actually coaching all three individuals that broke those records. Oh, that's so cool to see. The mile, two mile, and then three mile across country. By then, cross country had become a 5K. Yeah. But, you know, so, I mean, I like I said, I believe records are made to be broken. And, and just to be there when they were broken and, and to be involved coaching the kids that, that broke them, I, I could not have been happier for that. You've been coaching for a good chunk of your life. Right. How many I, years have you coached cross country? Um, this, or, is, this is the year coming up this fall will be year 25. Uh, uh, year, year 24 and track is starting in a couple of weeks here. That's so cool. And you've coached at a couple of different places around. Right. Where did you? you know, not, at, not, at, not having a, a teaching degree. I've never been a teacher at any school. So it's really not as easy as you might think to get coaching jobs. But I was able to, at my high school alma mater, Whitnall, I was able to coach for 16 years. You know, largely due to, um, I at the time I was still a current record holder from 1977 and 1976 of several school records. So kind of my name recognition I got in. They had the legend himself, though. Like, right? Got it. If we get the legend, so I got the to coach. coach there, and, and I, I wasn't always the head coach. I was the assistant coach for a number of years, and then I became head coach in cross country, and I was always an assistant coach in track. But um, so I had 16 years at Whitnall High School, and, th- and then I got out of coaching for a while, moved to Madison, came back to this area, coached at Hartford High School for five years, and now I'm in my third year coaching at Franklin High School. 
So for a, a non-teacher, that's um, impressive. I'm pretty blessed, you know, that this would be my 25th year of coaching coming up, starting in the fall, and and you know, literally well over a thousand athletes, boys and girls, somewhere in the, probably in the 1500 range of uh, young people I've been able to work with, and I, I feel blessed for that. That's, I mean, that's a lot of kids. Is cross country is that just like varsity, or does that also include? freshman it includes everybody all, all the grades and and um you know you never know how large your team's going to be Whitnall was a smaller school so mm-hmm. we were fortunate if we got 20 boys and 20 girls out say but um my last two coaching stints at Hartford and now Franklin uh, the schools are much larger and uh the teams have been much larger for that reason uh, yeah those um, are both d1 schools right right and, and We've ranged from 30 to 35 or 40, even 50 um, members of each gender at Franklin High School. So if you're the head coach, you're looking at, if you're the the head boys coach as I am, you're looking at 50 athletes. The girls had 50 athletes. So combined, it's a a team of 100 people. That's a lot of kids. And I, uh, you know, teams are pretty large these days, and I attribute that to the second running boom that we spoke of earlier. The, yeah, um, you. I like how you put the the running uh, phases in the country in the booms, like the seventies boom. When was the right. second boom in your mind? Right. And I think the advantage to this current running boom. When do you think this current running boom started? I believe somewhere around the year two thousand. I think it was when, largely when uh, the the younger people of the first running boom started to have kids of their own, and it, and so. And I think it was a double blessing because not only were the parents, a lot of them were still runners, but they had been runners, and then they had kids and mm. encouraged them to be runners. I like you know, that. Whereas when I was that age, if you were a guy as a freshman, you went out for football, but all of a sudden soccer had come about, so a lot of kids did a lot of running in youth soccer. So I think when the second running boom occurred, kids were more prepared to be runners. Mm-hmm. And you can notice it in, in race times and what have you at the high school level. The ninety the nineteen nineties were kind of a little bit of a dead zone where times weren't getting any faster. But somewhere right around two thousand, the, the second wave of runners, young runners came in and, and times have dropped drastically and and Wisconsin all has always been really well known around the nation for producing high quality distance runners. Yeah. I actually never thought of that. Where where is Wisconsin in the distance game throughout the nation? Like where where are we placed? I think especially when it comes to distance running, we're remarkably high because we have we have such a variety of weather and seasons mm-hmm. changing that you have to be really hardy. You know, you have to you have to deal with a lot. I think it makes you mentally strong, mm-hmm. and it, and it also I think forces you to take breaks once in a while. Sometimes the weather is so extreme, hot or cold that that. A runner needs to take a little bit of a break, back off, so to speak. Whereas, if you live in a warm weather state, it's probably better for sprinters and, and and jumpers and what have you. You don't pull muscles and things of that nature. But for a distance runner, um, being in a really warm weather state is kind of difficult. It's 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 harder to do, and there's no change. You know, the year round is almost the same type of weather, so you don't mentally get that tough. I think. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, states like that produce really tough, hard-nosed distance runners because we have to deal with an extreme variety of weather and road conditions. Yeah, exactly. So going back to the first boom, so you w- would you say you were the younger generation during that first boom that saw 
I mean, there was a lot going on in the running scene, right? Like certainly. Um, who are some of the people that led that boom that you kind of looked up to and helped lead, just lead it in general? Well, I think for me, and I was 13 in the summer of 1972, and and even though I hadn't officially started running yet, the you know a year later I would do that mile in freshman football whatnot, but I we did do the 600 yard dash. It was required in gym class, and I did finish second out of all my classmates in that. Who'd you lose to, your brother? No, it was a uh, one of the best all around athletes in the school, and mm. I, you know, and it wasn't by much. And he was such a well respected athlete, and I was kind of a, a nobody, a nothing, so so to speak. That yeah, cool. I think a lot of people were shocked, and, and that's probably when the the you know I started to realize, well, maybe I, there is something to this running thing, and I might have something there. But in 1972, the the uh, the uh, Olympics in Munich, and it was, you know, a lot of people remember it for for the hostage situation that occurred, which was terrible. But Americans really started to take center stage that year in, in, in distance running. Um, a, a legendary runner named Steve Prefontaine, he was only, I believe, 20 years old or thereabouts, and, and he made the Olympic final in the, in the 5,000 meters, and he actually took the lead on the last lap of what is about a 12-and-a-half lap race. And he was going for the gold, and he wound up, getting passed by three runners in the last home stretch and, and getting fourth. But he, he was in his very early 20s. He, he was a college runner at the University of Oregon. And anybody who watched that race, you know, back in those days on the on the grainy TVs was inspired. And, and then a couple of days later, a, a young American named Frank Shorter went out, a Yale graduate, and he won the marathon over all the Europeans. And Kenyans had not really entered the running scene yet. So a young American won the gold medal in the marathon. And then another young American named Dave Waddle won the 800 meters. So all of a sudden, Americans were doing things. on a, And it had started in the late 60s as well. But I think this was the first fully televised Olympics that a lot of people watched. Mm-hmm. And um, and that those events, I think, kicked off the running boom. And then Steve Prefontaine died uh, rather famously in a car crash in 1975 and became a, a just a legend to all runners at the time and I was a junior in high school by then already on the verge of setting school records so you know I would have to list Frank Shorter um, Steve Prefontaine and and then a couple years later a guy named Bill Rogers came along and won four straight he won four Boston marathons on a five-year period for New York marathons in a five-year period Boston Billy they called him just dominated you know, and that was throughout the late 70s you know the running boom was on americans saw themselves as distance runners and you know it's the thing about distance running is is about half of the sport is is in your head it's it's you know you have to do the have the physical part obviously but so much is mind over matter and when you start to uh, conceive and believe you can achieve just about anything in the sport of distance running yeah it's such a mental game so that's cool to see it's after you bring it up with boom one, like as your generation started running because it Olympics are televised and people are seeing it and then it's starting to come into schools and it's becoming a mainstream option for, for kids to do. Right. And then those kids are now adults and are having kids. And then the boom kind of starts. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting to look at it that way. I really, you know, to bring it to a local level, like Frank shorter in 76, he got second to, in the Olympic marathon to a, uh, an East German back when there was 
you know, the, the Berlin Wall was still up. Yeah. And to a Soviet bloc athlete who has admitted in, in fairly recent times that he, that he was using drugs when he won that Olympic marathon. So, and Frank Shorter finished second to him. So, in, in my mind, in the mind of a lot of people, Frank Shorter won two consecutive gold medals in the Olympic marathon by rights. And later in 76, he actually came to the Milwaukee area for a run at Carroll College. I think they call it the Pioneer Run. And I part, I took place in that as a 17 year old. Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter again came out later in the 1970s. You know, it was way before the internet or the World Wide Web, any of that. But word of mouth and magazines and books, you know, we, uh, distance runners learned about these people and clung to these. And then when they came to our town to run races, it was a very big deal, and it, and it really motivated a lot of people. Yeah, they. I didn't realize the Carroll College race. That's cool. But we were talking before the show that they came multiple times to the Cudahy. Right. What is the Cudahy Classic now? What was then? It was called. Well, it was. Um, it was called the Schlitz Cudahy Ten Mile Race. Schlitz Cudahy. Schlitz Brewing was behind it. And, and, and the Badland Striders were, were the organizers of the race, but Schlitz was a sponsor, and they brought in Frank Shorters, Bill Rogers, and another quality American distance runner named Rick Rojas, three really great runners and all to compete. And the three of them were in a pack throughout the entire race. I, I wisely chose to be a volunteer at that race so that I could watch the happenings going on. And, nice. And Where see, were you volunteering? I was in the VIP tent, so I even got autographs Ooh. when the race was over. And it was it was started and ended in Sheridan Park, just like the God of Hate 10 does now. What and was the, the reasoning behind, was like, because Schlitz was a sponsor, so I'm assuming they paid right? them in. Was it just to bring more awareness of like the running scene in Milwaukee? Were you guys, were I, you guys trying to like poach more racers that. out of Chicago? Well, I think partly that. And then, you know, the running boom was on. And obviously when there's a lot of people doing the same a common thing that the advertisers see that it's viewed as a marketing yeah opportunity and and you know not to generalize but runners like to drink a few beers when they get done and, and the brewing company miller brewing in milwaukee slits was still big paps was still at full force you know milwaukee what it was at least at that time the, the brewing capital of of the the nation if not world and we had a lot of downtown breweries still in in operation not just miller but that being said miller got into the running uh boom in a big way they the the at least the first four years of of the lakefront marathon it was actually called the light beer lakefront marathon and that light beer had just been invented they were trying to promote the light beer brand it, it's for, so you know, funny that like light beer tastes was great just less being filling. branded and they were the, that was the name of the marathon that's Correct. so cool because we live in a world of micro brews and ipas and lagers and right. new england hazy ipas it's that's so funny do you have any of that swag any i would love to see a Light beer Milwaukee Marathon T-shirt. Well, I know. I know that the Badgerland Striders still have some of them in their I need archives. To go find and those. I need a. <clears throat> I need you to help me right. break into the cage and get one. Right. <laughs> I'll do my best with that. But <laughs> Richard rolled his eyes. I don't think that's happening, guys. But getting back to the cut eight ten mile, you know. Yeah. Um, Rick Rojas actually led a lot of the race, and Frank Short and Bill Rogers sat on him, so to speak, and and. Um, Frank Shorter did win that race in the, in the final mile. And at the time, he ran in the uh, 
47 minute range, about 47 and a half minutes for 10 miles. I mean, think about it. That's in a 445 per mile pace range. They're flying. And not only that, but he set an American record that day. It was an American record was set in, on Milwaukee soil for 10 miles. That's so cool. Like a, a, seeing a race like that in Milwaukee right. is so cool. Because you just don't think like that's that's a race that happens here. Right. And, and Bill Rogers, two months earlier, had won the Boston Marathon for the fourth time. So these were big name people. Frank Shorter, a double Olympic medalist in the marathon, including a gold. Yeah. You know, the Milwaukee was a real hot running scene in the late 70s, early 80s. That's when the Al McGuire runner started. And Al McGuire was a runner himself. Yeah, the that's coach Al, of the Al's Marquette. run, right? Right. Al's run, that's cool. Yeah, a lot of stuff was really popping up around that. Right. Northwest Mutual Life had a really big race. They called, you know, the Quiet Company. It was a 10K race downtown. There was a lot of really big races in the downtown Milwaukee area in the, in the late 70s, throughout the 1980s that have gone by the wayside. Because, you know, once the numbers start to drop and, and the money's not really there, then the sponsors leave and then a race folds. And unfortunately, we'll probably see that again in the years to come. You know, it's still a hot button topic and and, and uh, races and race promoters like the strike while the iron's hot, obviously. But at some point, that will start to wane a bit. It may even be happening already. And then we'll see some of these big races leave town. Uh, the Rock and Soul Half Marathon left just a couple summers ago and that was a mainstay on the on the Milwaukee scene for a good 10 years or so yeah that was a big race that's gone away so how was it seeing those races then I assume that was 80s early 90s those races started to fall off the map pretty quick right yeah you know it was sad in a way but then but then it made you feel good about the the races that that lasted and, and and you know, including the Firecracker Four, which is kind of my baby, so to speak. You yeah, know, you got to throw that in there; it's still around. Right. I mean, I, and granted, after three years, we stopped running that thing out of our house because our parents were not real happy about getting a thousand pieces of mail on an annual basis. <laughs> That's you know, in a, in a two or three weeks' time, a hundred pieces of mail to the mailbox. I don't think our post uh, office carrier liked us a whole lot, but. Um, Several running stores took the race over and kept it going. Then the Badgerland, it became a Badgerland Strider race in the 1980s. And they have uh, kept it going to this day with, with a variety of race directors. But, you know, most running events, either the event company tires of, of doing it and, the, and the, they're not making the profits they once made, or there's burnout, race director burnout. You know, after three, four, five years as a race director of any certain event, you know, you, you start to tire and maybe lose all the zest and zeal you had for that race in the yeah, beginning totally. and, and maybe even the cause that it's for. So it's just kind of the natural progression of things. But, you know, that makes it special when races do last, like mm -hmm. the 40-year races, 40-plus-year races, yeah, the Cotahay 10s and, and, the, and the Al McGuire run. It's cool to Lake see. Lakefront Marathon's in his 40th year right now. I mean, most of those races outside of Al's are Badgerland races. So it's cool to see what right. Badgerland has done of – using their organization to keep these races around and then like being in Badger, those races being a part of badger lens helps with burnout right. so if you guys have a race director who doesn't want to be a race director anymore or someone else wants to be correct the race still lives other people are just in charge and right that's, i see that being huge and that's helped keep those races around for so long agreed because it is a non-profit nobody's paid for their positions <clears throat> in the club whether it be in a club officer or, or a race director I even directed one of their races, the Turkey Trot, for five years, and, and 
in uh, Whitnall Root River Parkways, mm-hmm. and but there there's always somebody learning the ropes, so to speak, at your race. You know, volunteers and, and they decide they'll take it over yeah. when they're good and ready. And when you're in a club that large with a lot of uh, young people and new young blood coming in, into the organization on an annual basis, there's always somebody willing to step up and and give back to the sport because you know a lot of it. it to me, it's incumbent upon being a distance runner and one who's had more probably than my share of success, you know, is helping others achieve that same, whether it's through coaching at the high school level or organizing a race where people can get their start. You know, it's all about giving back. And even if you're just a volunteer handing out water cups at the water stop, the runners and walkers really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I implore you, especially if you're at a kind of a lull or a lag in your own running and, and maybe need a break, go and volunteer and you'll be amazed, you know, not only at watching a race from that perspective, but you'll, you'll be quite surprised how appreciative the runners and race organizers are and that you gave that help. And it, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. I Volunteering is also like a good way to get energized if you're right. like down on running or you're injured or something. Cause it's just, you realize that running's so much bigger than you and right. it's such a big community, even though, right. It's such a solo thing. You're out there by yourself. Like when you're out there, I love volunteering at Lakefront if I'm not running and, right. and it's the energy is so fun. Everyone's so thankful. You're at a, like a water station with 15 to 50 other people. Right. And everyone's so excited to be out there. And it's, it's just a lot of good energy and a lot of good vibes. And it's a, it's a super easy way to give back for sure for being on the other side of it when you're running well and so. I, I think it's a good way to get off your own personal pity pot sometimes if yeah it, you know if you're nursing an injury or struggling a bit and, it, and then you volunteer to race and you see people that are maybe hurting and struggling a lot more than you yourself but yeah. they're out there doing it you know it kind of makes you take stock in yourself and, and realize you know maybe i don't have it so bad here yeah definitely yeah it's always fun to go like let's go back to lakefront last year right yeah spectated with a bunch of people and how energized everyone was and it's like i'm getting back in the game i'm running a marathon next spring i'm doing it i mean i signed up for a marathon this spring because i watched lakefront last year i'm like what am i doing not being a part of this and you know i think we all we often forget about that because like training can be long and daunting or you know you get in you get injured and you get down on yourself but it's always it's so much fun for sure no matter where you're at well, then getting back to the, you know, the, the, we talked about the Mar- Mayfair Marathon earlier. I ran the mini marathon at, you know, and I, again, I was only 17. And then I, I was working at a gas station at the time in Hales Corners. And back then it was full service. You know, you had to go out and pump the gas and check the oil and <laughs> wash the windshields. And uh, so I was doing that. And one of my coworkers said, Oh, you ran a mini marathon. Huh? You know, I, I'll bet you can't do a full marathon. And, I wasn't the type to back down from a bet, so I, I actually ran my very first marathon f- uh, about five months later. Is on, that on how a dare. You, you got dared into your first marathon right. by a coworker? Right, a gas station worker, nonetheless, <laughs> who didn't run a lick. Trust me. <laughs> oh, and I then, bet. So I ran in the October of 1977. I ran a marathon out in New Glarus, Wisconsin, and it was it was very small, and it was on an old railroad bed. It was crushed gravel, and uh. I was like three months past my 18th birthday, and I, I did not, um, I was having a great race, and, and but and it didn't walk at all until the last couple of miles. Again, my longest training run had been a 14-mile race 
several months earlier, so I really wasn't quite prepared. <laughs> and uh, but I, um, and this will probably anger a lot of people out there, but I ran three hours flat in, in 31 seconds in my first <laughs> marathon at you know a tender age of 18. And with back some, then the Boston qualifier walking. was three hours flat, you know, and they didn't lop off seconds, so I missed the Boston qualifier for 31 by 31 seconds. So then my natural inclination was, well, that wasn't so bad. And maybe next time I don't walk in a little bit in the last couple of miles, I'll, I'll get that Boston qualifier. So my intention was to get a Boston qualifier, run Boston, and then be done with it. You know, So then uh, the following summer on a very hot day in Aurora, Illinois, I did qualify for the Boston Marathon. And my twin brother had already qualified at, at the Mayfair Marathon, which, interesting note about the Mayfair Marathon, and that was also put on the by the Badgeline Striders, in 1980, that marathon stopped. In 1981, the Lakefront Marathon started. So the Mayfair Marathon of the 1970s basically became the the Lakefront Marathon of the 1980s with a much improved, better course. Totally different But course. a lot of the same people behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And so then I did qualify for Boston as, a, as an 18-year-old, ran it for the first time with my twin brother as a 19-year-old, and that was 1979. So, I was by the time I had hit my 20th birthday, I had already run four marathons. That's would, crazy. That's I even wouldn't crazy advise today. that for anybody, but yeah, it was. I found out right from the get go that running long distances was my calling, and the, the further I ran, the better it seemed. So, I, the the marathon was a natural um, target. And in that 79 Boston Marathon, my twin brother and I were both. In the two thirties, we we my twin brother and my, you know with all due respect, my twin brother he wasn't as motivated in high school I would say as I was, so he was always a little bit behind me, but he got extremely motivated uh, post high school collegiate level, and all of a sudden we were running side by side and, we, and he was in, and sometimes he was ahead of me and. Uh, whatnot, and, and at that Boston Marathon in 1979, again we were 19 years old. He ran two hours and 33 minutes, and I ran two hours and 36 minutes. And for him, it was a 20 minute PR, and for myself, it was 15 minute PR. And for a couple 19 year olds that grew up in a broken home in Hales Corners, all of a sudden we were like on the national running scene. We were we were nationally ranked for 20 under 20 marathon runners. Again, not many. Uh, under 20 age people do a marathon so it was probably not the longest list in the world but but also, when you're in the 230 range under six minute pace at the age of 19 in a marathon a full marathon people start to take notice and and we we started to realize that we really had a future in that in marathoning and that we, we would you know from that point on we threw our full weight into it yeah and you guys kept going which <clears throat> you ran some more races and kept getting right. faster and staying consistent your fastest when did you pr um you your pr in the marathon is 219 right. when did that happen uh, my all-time pr in the marathon of 219.38 was at uh lakefront marathon and, and again it was called the light beer lakefront marathon and, and and some of the draw of that was not only for miller brewing to get some pr and in, in uh milwaukee you know where miller brewing is they also put prize money into the race. And again, the Kenyans had not really burst upon the marathon scene. That was to happen another five or 10 years later. So these are largely Midwestern people vying for prize money mm-hmm. in races. And 
you know, in today's dollars, it might not sound like a lot, but a, a couple thousand dollars back in 1983 for a, a runner who was just doing it on his own and probably had a full-time job and trained on the side. Mm-hmm. A couple thousand dollars were pretty enticing, so they attracted some really quality Midwestern fields. And in 1983, was no different. And the uh, unlike the first two years where the weather wasn't the greatest for the Lakefront Marathon, in, in 1983, they had an absolute perfect, glorious day. And... Um, 10 runners broke two hours and 20 minutes, and I was the 10th one. I was in 10th place with 21938. I, I got the last paycheck. I got $100. Again, it might not sound like a lot, but I was 23, 24 years old, you know, just out of college. $100 went a long ways in 1983. For me, it was a real shot in the arm, but way more than above that, it was getting under the two hour and 20 minute mark because I, I had run two. 21 at Boston, 220 at Grandma's, but I, there was just something about getting under 220. It's kind of like breaking the four-minute mile. Uh, just getting under, I, I missed the Olympic trials qualifying time that day by 30 seconds, but by getting under 220, you know, the letters started coming, shoe company sponsorships, things like that. It was kind of, you know, it was kind of the ceiling you just had to get under. That's cool. As, an, as a marathoner in those days to really, truly get noticed so in that regard, it was a very big deal for me. And um, that led to a Saucony shoe running contract and for both my twin brother and myself. And my twin brother has a personal best of two hours, 19 minutes, and 12 seconds run at Grandma's Marathon in Duluth, Minnesota, several years later. As far as I know, at the time, we were the only uh, US, the only American you know, twins in the United States that had both broken two hours and 20 minutes in separate marathons and and uh, that may or may not still be true we should investigate that that's a cool fact and it's pretty rare you know to have a sub 220 runner in any family but to have a set of twins in the same family you know that, that largely like i said earlier fell off the turnip truck and started distance running at age yeah. 14 it's not like you were bred to do that like you were born and raised to be distance right. runners you guys like stumbled into it right and then f- threw our full weight into it but Clearly, we had we had an ability and a propensity to do so. We just had to discover it, and thankfully, we did. And then we, you know, I'm not going to lie, we did a lot of hundred mile weeks in training. This didn't happen by accident, but you know, by the grace of God, everything just pulled together in the mid '80s for us. And and we ran for Saucony shoes for four years. My twin brother won the Lakefront Marathon twice wearing a Saucony uniform. How was the? So what's it like, kind of having a sponsorship back then? Or you- um, it was what pretty did you neat. Get you know, shoes. It, it wasn't lucrative from a financial standpoint. It, it, you know, financially, it was just travel expenses, what have you. And, and we chose Saucony. Saucony had just changed their name at that time from from the Spot Built Running Company and or Spot Built Shoe Company, and they were largely known for other sports. Mm-hmm. But again, because of the running boom and the pe- the mass amount of people that were doing it, you know, the 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 shoe companies are going to come. That Nike had just been founded at that point. You know, if people would see the kind of high the when my twin brother and I were in high school, the, the running shoes that were available were were so inferior to the shoes of today. We used to go to J.C. Penney to get our running shoes. We, you know, Nike hadn't even been founded yet. Yeah, just like flat bottom flat shoes. I assume. Right. White. So, you know, in the eighties, all these shoe companies came about: Brooks, Nike, the the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties, and they started vying for better runners and in, in the in the countries to wear their gear during races, wear their shoes, obviously. So for us, 
you know, again, we were running 100 miles a week. You go through a lot of shoe leather, and we, we were getting free pairs of shoes every month in the mail. We got the uniforms. Um, one of our teammates, you know, we were on the Saucony B team, and the, and the A team had a guy named Rod Dixon on it. And in, in the fall of 83, he won the New York City Marathon with a Saucony racing team jersey and really put that racing team on the map. That's cool. So that was kind of cool, you know. I, he was kind of our pseudo teammate, so to speak. Yeah, well, he's definitely a teammate. What was the coolest perk or uh, like event you got to be a part of being on the Saucony race team? Right. I mean, it was really, really neat and a lot of fun. Just in, to be, you know, to say you were on the team and to get shoes every month, gear, and, and expenses covered. Uh, Saucony was Boston based at the time, so that you know they would pay our expenses, whatnot, for the Boston Marathon and. and I think it had helped that we had done well at the Boston level to get that sponsorship. Um, you know, it was just there was just a lot of certain amount of pride in it because you you know it never was handed to us. We really worked hard for it. Obviously, we had some innate ability that that most people don't have, given that we were twins and we wound up doing literally the same things. But but I mean, running hundred mile weeks is right. You're training at this point. I mean, you might have the the nat, let's say the natural ability for it, but that's right. that's hard work. You guys are putting in the time. Well, and we and you know, obviously we had some innate ability, but we weren't like unbelievable at the high school level. In fact, neither one of us qualified for a state meet, and or even really came all that close to it. I was a lot closer than he was, but so we never ran a state meet in high school track or cross country. But by the time we were 19 years old at the Boston Marathon, we were nationally ranked marathon runners. And um, so it wasn't like we were blessed with great leg speed or anything of that nature, but we, we, we were mentally tough. And some of that may have been due to our, the, the uh, household upbringing we had. But we also had a great propensity to run long distances without slowing down very much. And that, that tied into like our max VO2, which we found out in college when we underwent testing. Our max VO two was really high, like up there with Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers. Yeah, that definitely helped. We just didn't have the leg speed they had. So, <laughs> you know, those guys were two ten marathoners. We were two twenty. But yeah, you know, in the broad scheme of things, there's not that big of much of a difference. And I have to be honest, you know, running a two nineteen back then, it seemed like everybody and their brother were running two nineteens. So it, it really wasn't that remarkable. But you know, nowadays, if if you're a two nineteen marathoner, it seems like you're kind of elevated to a status that maybe we weren't back then, but I mean, the sports it, there so just much aren't as many, yeah, you know, this, save for the Kenyans yeah. and the Ethiopians of the world. The sports, I mean, the sports so much bigger, so right. it's just everything's elevated a little bit more. So I want to talk about before you before you get out of here. I mean, in '83 you set your marathon PR, but right. in '82 you set a different type of PR with your twin brother, right? Yes, we had we had run the '82 Light Beer Lakefront Marathon, and uh, my twin brother finished ninth, I believe, and I was 18th in, in a quality field. That was not the first year of the Lakefront Marathon, but it was the, the second year. The, mm-hmm. uh, the first year was in '81, and we were still running collegially at UW Lacrosse, so we were unable to run the marathon. Mm-hmm. But we ran it year two, did pretty well, and then uh, we decided we heard about this race in Madison, the Vilas 50K, and. You know, we figured, well, it's only a marathon plus five miles. It can't be that difficult. And you so, guys just did a marathon and you're in shape. Right. So we kind of used the lakefront marathon as our last long run, so to speak. And then a month later, um, 
in in the month of November, believe it or not, it was quite cold. It was about 25 degrees that I recall during the entire race. We ran the Vilas 50K in Madison, and um, we wound up tying for first place and and broke the state record in the process, got under three hours by only four seconds. And at the time, we were the 12th and 13th American to ever break three hours for 50K. And to this day, I don't believe there's been more than maybe 20. So we're probably still in the top 20 in uh, the U.S. ranks. That's so awesome. Well, and, you know, it was, people think, well, you you tied for first place. You must have ran the whole way together. But I, I had to be honest, you know, I probably had more talent than my brother as a runner, but but he had more guts. And there was a, a gentleman in the race named Bill Wilkie of Madison, and longtime runners will remember him. And he was kind of unorthodox. He didn't have the greatest running style, but he was he was tough as nails. And mind you, this is a 50K race, and he and my brother went out, hit the mile mark in 520. <laughs> and they had 30-plus miles to go yet. Yeah, and, and I kind of sat back. I went out myself in five forty. I'm like, I'm just gonna let those guys go because I, it's insane to me to, to go out in a fifty k race at five twenty for the mile. <laughs> so those guys duked it out for a long time, and at, at about twenty miles, I could see them coming back to me. And it, it was a four point five loop course that we did seven times. So there were a few vantage points on on the loop where you can kind of see over and see where they were at. So I knew I was kind of gaining on my brother anyway. My brother started to come back to me. So in the 21st mile, I caught him. And then I said, hey, come on, let's go. Let's go get this guy. So then my brother regrouped, and he ran. we ran together. And then eight miles later, at the 28-mile mark, past the marathon, we caught him. And we had gone through the marathon in like 231 flat, which for me was only a couple of minutes off my PR. For my brother, it was about five minutes off his PR. But... So we weren't that far off our marathon PRs, and then we ran another five miles in in 28 minutes for the last 8K, which is, you know, the, the metric five miles. And at 28 miles, we caught the leader, Bill Wilkie, and then we just worked together. And over the last three miles, we put about three minutes on him. We were really poured it on, and he was he was fading. And uh, so we crossed the finish line, and we joined hands. We came around the last corner, and we could see the clock. You know, back then, they didn't have – fully automatic timing or any of that nature, but they did have large digital clocks. Mm-hmm. And we saw the clock ticking over, and we knew it was about to go over three hours. So we really sprinted it in, and we, we got under the three-hour mark by four seconds. We didn't probably know the magnitude of it. We found out later that that we were two of only 13 Americans that had broken three hours. Were you, at what point were you like, we're finishing this together? Because I assume that was kind of the plan then at the end. right. I mean, I when I realized I was gaining on my brother, and, and this is probably where the difference in him and me lies in. Like me, once I start to fade in a race, there's there's not a whole lot of hope for regrouping and regathering and returning. Yeah, you know, I'm at the point of no return. Whereas he's more the type, you know, he he ran so much on guts and emotion <laughs> that when I caught him, I just had to kind of feel him out, and say, "Hey, you got any more? Can you can you gather it up?" And he's like, "Let's go," you know. So. Maybe he sensed that I was gaining on him. He was just kind of waiting for me so they could work together. Because I think we ran very few marathons in our lifetimes all together. But when we did, we really ran well. One of them would have been the, the 1983 Boston Marathon. And we um, 
we ran two hours and 21 minutes together at Boston, um, which at the time it was a, it was a, about a seven minute PR for him. And I think, uh, three or four minute PR for my twin brother, four minutes maybe. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we were knocking on the door or breaking 220 at that point. Yeah. And anybody who's run Boston, even if it has a, a decline overall in, in elevation, it is a very tough course. <laughs> it's a really tough course. The vast majority course. of the decline is in the first six miles. Yeah, I mean, and then, you hit Heartbreak Hill at well, right. those You've end got miles, and that's tough. Very serious hills in there. And for us to, to work together and run PRs and run 221 at the Boston Marathon, I, even though I've run two minutes faster at Lakefront, I, I really consider – the 221 effort at Boston, and it was only six months apart from the 219, as probably one of my greater running accomplishments. Uh, that you know, most years that will get you in the top 50 at Boston. Sometimes even the top 25. That year w- was the most competitive year they ever had, so we were not quite up that far. But the very next year, my twin brother went back and ran 221 at Boston and finished 44th overall in the Boston Marathon. That's awesome. You guys are fast fast that the um the 50k state record that's pretty cool right that sticks out to me you know so then we just kind of made a pact to finish it in and then and and we did so and then the guy came back to us and we caught him and we and we won the race together and that's a good story yeah a really neat thing for us you know i know for me when i look back is again it was november of 1982 so um we had no way of knowing, but our father would only would only live another year and a half or so. He died when we were twenty four, and he was there to watch. and And because the loop, um, he was able to see us like twenty different times during the race, or at least fifteen. Yeah. Because he would walk a block or two and see us at another part of the loop, so he got to visualize and watch a lot of that race and, and us to run together. And he was, uh, we were twenty two, but he was like sixty three years old at that time. And he had gotten sober himself and and cleaned up his act. So I, he was the proud dad, and he played it up to the hilt. And then we won the race and and went to the awards ceremony together with our dad. And, you know, it was just really neat for that to happen. And we never could have known um, that within a year and a half or so that he would be dead. But you know, he had that lasting memory of seeing us yeah. do that together. And it, you know, the, when I look back at that race, of rec, all records aside, you know, the, the most lasting. Good memory I have that of that race and also of my 1983 Lakefront Marathon PRs that my dad was there to watch. That's so cool. That's awesome. It's so much more than you. You a lot of times you look at a race and you're like, oh, we got first, but there's so much more to that. Like your dad right. was there. He, you know, he got sober. You guys share all that together. So right. that's, that's an awesome experience and a great memory to have. Like you always right. have that. You can, no, nothing, no one can take that away from you. I'm, so. you no, know, he died when I was 24. I'm now yeah. approaching 61 years of age. You have such a cool, you have such a cool story, Richard. You have so many races. I mean, we are just, we just tapped into a, a little bit of like right. what you've gone through and what you've done. I mean, you're still kicking ass now with racing and doing good. And I know the firecracker four miler is still going on. You, you also co-founded Ethan's run against addiction. Correct. Which is a three K. I mean, a five K. It has a five K race. And, um, tell us a little bit about that. Um, and kind of how you got involved with that. I was Ethan's freshman coach at Whitnall High School, and this would have been the 2005-2006 school year. Uh, Ethan Monson Dupuy was his name, and he, he was in high school. As a freshman, I had coached his sister, Deva, 
for, for three years also. So I knew the family quite well. And then, unfortunately, I had to get out of coaching after that year and attend to my, some of my own issues, you know, and f- for me, that involved alcoholism. I, I, you know, again, I, my father was an alcoholic. At, at some point in my life, I became my father's son, unfortunately, and, and got to a period of time in, in, in my late 40s where I had to take care of myself before I could think about taking care of anybody else anymore. So I got out of coaching and, and whatnot, and then Ethan Monson Dupuis wound up finishing out his career at Whitnall High School with other coaches. But again, I through his sister and, and his running in, I knew the parents both quite well. And the parents were runners too, so still are runners. So I, you know, I just knew the family quite well. And then I got better myself and got into sobriety myself and, and eventually moved back to the Milwaukee area. That, that, that all happened in Madison. And then... Um, through Ethan's dad, I had found out that he was kind of going through some issues and that he was in recovery. Ethan was in recovery. And, you know, so I tried to reach out and help in whatever fashion I could there. But then, unfortunately, you know, at some point, Ethan had relapsed and he, and he his addiction was, was to, uh, um, I don't want to say it, uh, opioids you know, the oxycodones, mm-hmm. oxycontins of the world, and a lot of it which has been prescribed initially. And then, you know, and and I think a lot of us, especially runners, we had kind of that addictive gene where when we latch on to something, we latch onto it hard. And mm-hmm. it, if it's a good thing, that's great. But if it's a bad thing, like, like drugs and or alcohol, it, it could not be so great. In fact, it can be very, very bad. And unfortunately, Ethan had relapsed and, and in fact had died from... Uh, uh, heroin overdose and so I I discovered that news I went to the funeral and again this is just about three short years ago and and at the funeral I, I spoke with the parents obviously and the sister that I knew very well and I met uh, his uncle and I took the uncle aside and I said you know I, you know one way to really honor Ethan and, and and perpetuate his legacy, so to speak, would, would maybe uh, get a, get an event started, a run walk, mm-hmm. you know, in his name. And and Ethan's dad was a, at that time retired as a Greenfield police detective, but had worked in the Greenfield Police Department for twenty five plus years. His mother was a behavioral psychologist with Aurora Healthcare, so these were very a very plugged in family, parents and. Collectively, we, you know, we, we came up with the idea to start Ethan's Run, you know, against addiction. And, and because you know, there's so many stigmas around alcoholics, addicts, what have you, and people want to suppress things and they want to act like things didn't happen. But, you know, it's real. And especially when it comes to the opioid crisis, it's just exploded in the last 10 years or so. And a lot of young people are dying. You know, the longer we put our heads in the sand and and pretend these things aren't going on, the more they perpetuate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, the, the family was very committed and, and on board from the get-go. We, we just we got a committee together, and within, um, within a year or so of Ethan's passing, we had already organized the first Ethan's run. And 
This year on June 13th in Conkle Park in Greenfield is going to be the third annual Ethan's Run. And I want to say the proceeds go to the Ethan Monson Dupuy Opioid Recovery Fund at Aurora Healthcare. And in the first two years of the event, this being year three coming up, we've already raised well over $100,000, that money that goes specifically to, to opioid treatment for obviously not for Ethan because he's no longer with us, but for, for those that are going through the same struggles uh, out of the Dewey Center in Wauwatosa, which is affiliated with Aurora Healthcare. So it's a it's a total nonprofit event and organization, and, and uh, so much good has happened already because of the event. And, and you know, we're going to keep doing it as long as there's a need, unfortunately. And, you know, hopefully one day they'll there won't be a need anymore, but as long as there is, we're going to raise the funds and we're we're going to go to battle because, again, we can't keep our heads in the sand. We can't pretend this isn't happening. Alcoholism and and drug addiction are huge problems in in today's society, in Milwaukee and, and throughout the United States and the world. And we, and we we've got to tackle these issues head on. You give back so much. I mean, you've done so much for running yourself in the community, being part of Badgerland, you know, your racing, being, you were also really good at it, which is helpful. And then giving back, you've coached for 25 years, doing this run now, which is going into his third year. It's, it's a lot. You have a big impact on Milwaukee. And I want to say thank you. Well, well, thank you. And I, you know, again, going back to what running meant to me in my formative years and how, if I had not discovered it, at age 14 that I was exceptional at it and threw everything into it along with my twin brother. We were clearly headed down a bad path at that time, already some juvenile delinquency sort of things that I don't really want to get into. But, you know, we were going to go one way or the other at that point in our lives. And thankfully, we, went, we threw ourselves into the whole running thing and, and, it, and it took us to places we never thought we would go, you know, sponsorships, traveling, what have you. I, I'd never been on an airplane and went, until age 20, 21, and then I started getting flown to run races in, in other states. You know, for a, a, a kid growing up on the poor side of the tracks, it was a big deal for me and my twin brother, and and, and we latched onto it. But what if we wouldn't have had that? And you know, where would we have gone? And clearly it would have been down the wrong path. And one of the reasons I like to coach at the high school level is I like to kind of keep my eye out for people that were just like, for young people that were just like me at 14 and a little bit. Long distance running kind of tends to attract the wayward crowd and and, and you <laughs> yeah. know, kids that might be looking for an out. They aren't really good at the conventional ball sport, so they kind of, running's kind of like a last resort sport, you know, and then they discover they love it and they're good at it and they can PR one week to the next, you know, it's a really positive thing. And I, I, no matter if you're the number one runner on your team or the number 40 runner on your team, you got your own PR, you get to run every week. And if you set a PR, it's to me and, and to the individual, it's just as big of a deal as if you won the race outright, you know. That's, that's We're a great, all our own entity of one, and we all have our own PRs. That's the great part about running is there's always winners, right? But right. at the end of the race – I'm not at the front of the pack ever. I'm in the right. middle at the end, but I can still cross the finish line and have a PR and it'd be for sure. So that's awesome. And I, you know, getting back to the sport has given and brought so much to myself. I, I feel my own heart of hearts that it's incumbent on me to give some of that back. And, you know, whether it be in the form of coaching high school runners or coaching people on the side, 
without remuneration. I, you know, it doesn't have to be a money thing. I, mm-hmm. you know, it's the sport I love and and that has brought a lot to me. I I, I want to give back in any form or fashion that I can. We talked a lot about how you've given back to the sport, whether it's through coaching right. or through you know Ethan's run and doing stuff for the Badgerland Striders. But for yourself, you started running at a young age and found a lot of success in your 20s. Um, have you always been running consistently um, and that competitively? Have you ever had a, like taken a step back from running at all? Well, it, you know, it's always been there. I, I think at about age 30, I, I stepped back from running really competitively. You know, every runner reaches a point where they're not really setting PRs anymore and and you know, at that time, I got married, and you know, thinking about raising a family, things that I enter in life. You know, life kind of takes its course, and and you move on. But I, but running was always there. It was always kind of my escape, as it was in the beginning. You know, I did fourteen. You know, let's face it, when I was going through some problems growing up, I, if I went for a run and came back, and and my my head was cleared, you know, I just it just put my thoughts in place. And that continued in, in into my 30s and 40s. And, and um, I would still run some pretty good races. And when I turned 40, I got ran a few really good Masters races, and, and including a 243 marathon at age 43. Whew. But right at about that point, and that was 2002, um, and, and, and again, you know, I, I grew up the son of an alcoholic and, and – and I honestly think there's like a recessive gene for that. I, I know that if you're from a, the family of an alcoholic or addict, you have four times a greater chance of developing in yourself. And I, I fought it most of my adult life. I was always a pretty heavy drinker, and it always came kind of natural to me, and I had a really high tolerance for it, unfortunately. But there was a point in my early 40s, and that would have been the early 2000s, that it really became problematic for me. And it you know, in retrospect, it led to the dissolution of my marriage. And then, which in turn, because I wasn't, you know, had I addressed my drinking at that time, I, I probably would have kept the marriage intact, most likely. And then, and, but then by getting divorced, I had free reign to drink like I wanted to. And, and then it, that's when it really took off for me. And, and for the next four or five years, it, it escalated to a point where I, I got in legal trouble, I, I was losing jobs. And, and I actually, and this is when my twin brother called me. He's been living in the state of Pennsylvania for over 30 years. And he called me at that point. And he's, he said, when I found out you stopped running, then I knew you really had a problem. Because there was a point in about 2005 where I just stopped running altogether. And I did not run a step again for the next four years. And, and in the years 2006, 2007, the drinking really became problematic, cost me all kinds of jobs, relationships, mm-hmm. and to the point where I, I knew I had to, I had to address it or, or I was going to die. I was clearly on a death spiral and, in fact, was alarmingly close to dying from, from alcohol. And at that moment, I had a moment of clarity, and, and my sister called from Madison and said, you know, if we paved the way for you to get into a treatment center and we come and pick you up tomorrow will you go and and for once in my life I had a I had a good answer and I said yes and that was on uh, January 11th of 2008 I've been sober ever since I marked 12 years of absolute sobriety uh, last month and and last month congratulations 12 years years. that's that's incredible you know 
and a big part of my, uh, me attaining and maintaining sobriety is to give back not only and I'm not talking about the running world anymore I'm talking about in the sobriety world and mm-hmm. and, and uh, Ethan Run has been a part of that and I was involved with a run in West Bend prior to that called the Adrenaline Race Series and, and you know helping others helps me not only in the sport of running but also in my sobriety and uh, it's you know just like it is in running I think it's incumbent upon me in sobriety to to give back and help those that are trying to achieve that because again it's a it's a very difficult road and, and especially that first year or so and you need all the help you can get and and, and all, all the avenues of support that you can gain and I aim to be a part of that and and I, you know I I've run 55 marathons a lot of them at a very high competitive level you know, including a 303 marathon at the age of 52 at, in rec- after I had become sober at the Milwaukee Lakefront Marathon. and But becoming, attaining and maintaining sobriety has been the toughest marathon I've ever run, and especially the attaining part. And, you know, maybe, just maybe some of the uh, toughness that I had developed over being a distance runner most of my, all of my adult life, um, has helped me in that regard because I've learned how to stay the course, so to speak. And, and when the going gets tough, I, I just try to keep going. And let's face it, we're, we're in a, we live in a state that's the heaviest drinking state in the union. And, and <laughs> between Milwaukee and Madison, the two cities that I've lived in, uh, very big drinking cultures. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you can stay sober in towns like these uh, regarding alcohol, you can probably stay sober anywhere. But um, again, and I'm not one that goes to functions and whatnot and tells other people they shouldn't drink. You know, no, nobody gave me that right, but I know for me I can't do it. And, uh, you know, that that next drink will lead to a thousand that'll kill me. And, you know, I've been there. I've done that. I, um, and as long as I keep my progr- program of recovery going and take care of my own business, then and the running has really helped me get back because again i went four years without running a single step and i had surgery on both legs i've had two heart procedures i'm kind of the bionic man of the running world the bionic did you get were those surgeries um during the four years you weren't running um it was right when when i returned to running and wanted to run again and then Mm. um whether or not the drinking caused it i i i believe the the four or so years of really heavy drinking that i did um, led to a lot of heart, a lot of issues, health issues, mm-hmm. including it's the third leading cause of the uh, uh, arrhythmia, irregular heartbeat that I have. And and uh, my leg surgeries were for compartment syndrome, and it's the third leading cause of compartment syndrome is drug and alcohol use. Mm-hmm. So I believe that those led into it. But once I got those corrected and, and started living the right path, and and obviously for me that meant staying away from alcohol, uh, things started to take care of themselves again. I threw myself back into the sport of the running, which is really, you know, that was always my my fallback. You know, when when things got bad, as long as I stuck with the running, I was going to be okay. And now I turned 60 last summer and kind of threw myself back into road racing again and had a lot of success as a 60-year-old uh, last fall and even ran a 138 half marathon, which I'm still not quite sure where that came from, but... <laughs> You know that's uh, seven and a half minute miles at the age of sixty plus. Uh, You're crushing I'm, it. I'm blessed. Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, <clears throat> from 
12 years ago when you said, yes, right. it's time to get help. I mean, that's a huge first step and then sticking with it. Um, ever since, like you said, that was a good way to put it. It's the hardest marathon. You know, and I have a lot of gratitude. I know, you know what? I know how hard people work for their PRs and whatnot, and they couldn't fathom running a 138 half marathon. And the fact I was able to do it at age 60, you know, my 12th year of sobriety, um, again, like I felt on my 50th birthday, you know, I I reminded myself that I I was put on this planet to run, you know, born to run, so to speak, one of my favorite Mm -hmm. rock and roll anthems. And it, um, do you think after going through <clears throat> becoming sober again and going through this journey that do you have like a new like perspective on running itself? But I mean, you're back to coaching. You're right. you're part of Badgerland. You're 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 doing Ethan's Run. You kind of have a new outlook on all of these things that you've been doing. I believe so, and I you know, I mean, without getting too personal about my own uh, recovery, a, a large part has been a twelve step program with a spiritual component, and I. You know, which I never really had. I never had any churching growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, like my higher power, for lack of a better term, has been returning to nature, returning to running, and you know, getting lost in, in the woods somewhere, running, getting lost in Whitnall Park, and just forgetting about things, just like I did as a fourteen-year-old when I first started running, and it was such an escape for me then. Now it's kind of an escape for me now, a healthy escape, so to speak, and it, and just to get away from the hustle and bustle of the everyday world and and work and whatnot, and just to clear my head and, and get lost in my thoughts, uh, you know, it's kind of come full circle for me, and and now I'm past the age of sixty and still running. Yeah, that's running so cool. At the age of fourteen, the reasons you ran are some of the same reasons you're running now. Exactly, and it's so simple to do, and it's so powerful. For sure. That's incredible. Hey, I'm so proud of you. That is, that's a lot to go through. And, and I mean, you're kicking ass. You're doing great. You look Appreciate good, it. too. Thank that you. Florida tan on you on top of all this is, gives you a little extra shine. There you go. <laughs> all right. So, Richard, thanks for the great conversation today. You're welcome. Super cool. It's great getting to know you more. I know we've, we've met a few times and had some right. conversations and have shared a lot of Instagram direct messages. Richard right. says he's not a tech guy and then he's DMing me right. on Instagram. So you know I what's going that on. Out <laughs> All right, let's jump into these Cream City Pacers rapid fire questions. Okay. Scrolling, scrolling. Great. What shoes are you running in now? Would you buy them again? Believe it or not, I'm running in Saucony's and I, even though I, and it's not because they sponsored me back in the mid 1980s. I, I've actually really, uh, um, this shoe has really taken me. I've had a lot of foot problems in, in my running career. Are you wearing them right now? Yeah. Let's see them. Can you lift them up? All right, I'll describe them to you guys. They're the Saucony. What are those? Oh, he's taking the shoe off. Are those the Everlines? I can't read it. They're this gray and black color. They're a great shoe. I love yeah, it. They say Everlin on them. The folks at Pro know me, and they know when I'm walking in the door. Oh, they, they bring pro, out the. Uh, it's Pro already knows they have them. They have them ready to go for you. Shout right. out to Jess and Trey. I'm on the Pro Racing team, so I, plus I was the high school coach of Jessica specifically. But uh, Trey, I met Trey as a high school senior, and, and Jessica was a freshman at that time, and at Whitnall High School, and 
I was fortunate to be able to coach them and coach with Trey for a number of years at, at, for Whitnall Track. Yeah, you coached with him. So you coached them, and then you yeah, coached with side them. Side by side. And then so Jess was episode number two of our show, right. and she talked about getting into marathons, right. and you coached her to her first marathon. Yeah, it was one of those deals where she was a whitewater student. She would come home every weekend, and, and we would meet for long runs at Whitnall Park. And... You know, we'd meet, we'd talk, and it was just like old times. I was in my early 40s, and she was like 21 years old. And and at some point, when the long runs were escalating, we were adding mileage every week, and I said, well, maybe I should just enter the marathon and run it with you. So then it was the Madison Marathon in 2001, and Jessica's debut, and again, she was 21 or 22 years old. And she, uh, I ran every step of the way with her and get supporting her and cajoling her or whatnot and, and she but she was a rock and, and um we had no specific time goal but right out of the box at, at that age she ran a 316 marathon in madison and i believe was a seventh place female overall yeah that's incredible. It was a big boston qualifier for her and she eventually went on to run i believe a 301 marathon at the Milwaukee lakefront placed second mm-hmm. in that race several times and now the proud owner of six running stores with her husband Trey, and yeah, uh, you know, I knew them when they were just little teens. babies. I probably met Jessica when she was thirteen or fourteen years old, and Trey was maybe seventeen. And now to think they're in their forties or forty-ish, and with highly successful running stores that I'm able to run on their racing team and wear their singlet, it's pretty yeah. neat stuff. That's super cool, man. Talking about coming full circle, like that's it right there. No doubt about <laughs> like, it. Like take I, yourself back to like <clears throat> you co um <clears throat> you coaching them and right? they're just like little teen boppers and now here we are. They have these running stores. You're well, racing I, with them. I, I clearly remember cool. the state meet and it, it would have been um it would have been nineteen ninety five, the state track and field meet in lacrosse and 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 Jessica had qualified as a freshman for the 4x800 relay, and Trey was there as a sprinter or hurdler. You know, Trey was not a distance runner in high school, but extremely good athlete, multi-sport athlete. But anyway, so uh, Trey was starting to develop an interest in Jessica at that time. And he, <laughs> again, he was a senior, and, and Jessica was a freshman. So we're like, Trey, get away from the freshman. <laughs> but, you know... Love has its way of love has its way surpassing all and enduring and lo and behold within a couple of years they were both whitewater students and and dating and got married and you know they weren't even married in 2001 when when I ran this ma- uh, marathon with Jessica but Trey was there at the finish line with flowers it was a very you know again it's going on 20 years ago but a very surreal uh, moment that I'll never forget and um, I know there were times at the race when Jessica was gonna. Wondering if she could continue at that pace. So, you know, we were running seven and, and a half minute miles, which is for, you know, for her was incredible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I helped keep her going and we got to that finish line and, and she was overjoyed and Trey was overjoyed and, and Jessica's parents were there. It, it was a very great moment. And That's awesome. That's great. Very you could be special there for people it. in my lives. All right. <clears throat> Next question What is your favorite route to run in Milwaukee? I would have to say the Oak Leaf Trail. For myself, and, and specifically more like the southern extension of it. And again, growing up just outside of Whitnall Park, I, I ran the roads of Whitnall Park as a teen and, and from then on. And, and a lot of the Oak Leaf Trail section is fairly new down by the Root River. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, now that I'm coaching at Franklin High School, we're within a half mile of the Root River Trail, the Oak Leaf Trail along the Root River, and we run it a lot because it's safe and it, it, it's shaded and it's and it's nice and it's paved and it's away from traffic and you know. So I really like the Oak Leaf Trail now. Be way down by Drexel Avenue. I like Lawson. that. We get a lot of people saying the Oak Leaf Trail, but like. The right. city Oak Leaf Trail, the right? Southernmost <laughs> extension, and again, that probably like wasn't there 20 years ago, but oh, it's no there way. now. And it, and uh, uh, for a lot of people that, that haven't been on it, I, I encourage you go discover it. it. That's a really nice part extension of the Oak Leaf Trail. Definitely. If you could bring one person to Milwaukee to run with you, who would it be? Well, you know, if I could somehow bring Steve Prefontaine back to life and, and go for a run with him, that's who I would say. And I, you know. The other person would probably be Frank Shorter, and I, and I don't know if I should say this or not, but I, I can't say Bill Rogers because I once had the distinct uh, pleasure of uh, picking Bill Rogers up at the airport. The Badger on Striders had paid for him to come in for for the RCA convention in 1992, and I was designated as the person to go pick Bill Rogers up the at the chauffeur. airport. So naturally, I jumped at that chance, and then when we got back to the Mark Plaza at the time, which is now called something else... Um, <clears throat> Bill Rogers said, "Hey, let's go for a run." And I, I'm like, I wasn't going to run that day. I had already run that morning, but I, I'm, I wasn't going to turn down a chance to run with Bill Rogers. So me and Bill Rogers ran eight miles on the Milwaukee Lakefront. Whoa, that's so cool! Bradford so Beach. many people would come on the show and say Bill Rogers as right? their person, and you I mean, got to run me, with them. Look at it, you! Oh, it was uh, a thrill that's of a lifetime. Cool. All right, what is your favorite Milwaukee race? Oh, I would I would have to say the Lakefront Marathon. I know technically it's it just finishes in Milwaukee, so to speak, but it, you know it starts in the suburb of Grafton, but it runs mm-hmm. to Milwaukee. And it, yeah, oh, it's definitely it's, a Milwaukee race. We're it's often it. been referred to as as Milwaukee Lakefront Marathon or MLM for short. Yeah, and I, you know, again, knowing the history of the race, it, it was the Mayfair Marathon and then evolved, and which was solely in in, in Milwaukee County, and. One reason I really like Lakefront, and I have since I first ran it in 1982, is that you know you start way out in the boonies, you run past the farm field, but you know you're going home. And I was born <laughs> in Milwaukee. You know, I know for my twin brother, it was a very big deal to win Milwaukee twice. My highest finish there was second in 1986. You know, a lot of big thrills with that race for for me and my family, but just the fact that you're running home, so to speak, I like running the to the downtown area. You know, every time I cross a major arterial during that race, Silver Spring, Capitol Drive, I know I'm getting that much closer to downtown Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, a point-to-point marathon is is the way to go in the first place. But that one's a really special to me. I hear you on that. I know you're a minimalist when it comes to running, but what's your favorite running accessory? Really, you know, and I stress this with the kids that I coach. It's the shoes, you know, and it. They got to be the right shoes for you, and and it doesn't really matter what color or style they are. They they got to be functional, and you know I see so many people spending several hundred dollars on outfits, and then they skimp on the shoes <laughs> on the shoes, you know, and it should be the other way around. And I, I know running shoes are expensive, but uh, podiatrists and and therapists are even more expensive. And again, I've had both feet operated on, so I, you know, and I've had a lot of foot problems in my own running career. So I just can't stress enough, going to a running store such as Performance Running Outfitters, getting properly fitted for the shoes that are for you, that mm-hmm. regardless of color, 
you know, your friends running shoes in, in the shade of purple might look great for them and work great for them, but they might not work for you. <laughs> That's true. You know, so I, I would say I can wear anything else I want from a running standpoint, but to me, the biggie is to make sure I got the right shoes on. Couldn't agree more. All right, what is your favorite pre-race pump-up song? Uh, I think I aforementioned Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, we just kind of foreshadowed already in the episode. You know, and, I, and I, that song came out in 1975, and I was a junior in high school, and it was right about the same time Steve Prefontaine died tragically. And and it was about ra- racing cars in the streets of New Jersey, you know, after hours, what have you. But, you know, being a runner at that time and, and – it became the runner's anthem and, and the running boom was in full swing. And, and when I got to college, ran collegiately at UW lacrosse, it was the big song out there. You know, it was just the one at, at every fire up session or, or every track or cross country party. That was the song that kind of got the party going, you know, and, and heck yeah. And still uh, gets the party going. Right. Man, but there's I, nothing you know, better than when I throw on that album on a Saturday yeah. morning. And there's there's one other song I wanted to mention, and, and especially after I got sober and started running again, it was a big part of my recovery. And uh, it's a song, it's a kind of a country Billy rockabilly type song by a guy named Pat Green. And it's called Wave on Wave, and it, you know the, f- the first lines of the song kind of go like uh, mile upon mile. I got no direction. You know we're we're all looking for a change it's a redemptive type song and it's got just the right cadence to fit my running beat. And, mm. and, um, I like so if it. you want to Google wave on wave by Pat green. I, um, to me, it just gets me going. And, and especially when I got back into running in, in 2009, after a four year absence, I, at every race I went to, I would play it over and over on the, on the CD. I like it I on like the way it. to the race. And it, Those are two good songs. Two good songs. Okay, let's see here. What are your what are some upcoming goals in 2020 for you racing wise or running wise? Right. Well, last year is going to be kind of hard to surpass for me, especially the latter part of the last year after turning 60. I kind of got all fired up again age group wise and and probably over raced a bit, so I think that's why I'm a little bit on the injury shelf right now to a certain degree. Um, so that's going to be hard to top. So I might have to take a little bit of down year here. I think it's going to be hard to beat, especially that half marathon time. We'll see yeah. how it goes. You know, some reco- uh, so some recovery. Some right. I, I'm always the out. type, and I I don't have own or have ever even run on a treadmill. So that that's not part of my training philosophy. I just personally don't like them. So I heard that I, I'm I run a few times a week at the Pettit Center. I get outside when it when it I feel it's nice enough to do so. You know, as you get older, you kind of get a little more wimpier in that category. At least I have. <laughs> I'm wimpy now. <laughs> right. So I, um, this is all, winter's always been kind of a downtime for me, so I don't get real specific about goals. You know, mm-hmm. with the exception of Boston, when you're training for Boston, obviously it's two months away. You got to be going full bar already. Yeah. But I haven't done Boston for four years now. And, um, you know, just, but I just really like throwing myself into other people's running through my high school coaching, Ethan's mm-hmm. run, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, giving back gives to yourself as well. And and uh, I had such a good year last year, I would hate to tarnish it and taint it. <laughs> I, You know, I was running like 
times I hadn't run in four or five years. And yeah, that's awesome. It was that's really gratifying year. as a sixty-year-old. You know, just when you think you're washed up and your running career is over, to Boom. Yeah, but uh, we'll see. I, you know, I just want to be with runners and around runners, and, and you know, irregardless of what my own running is doing, I, I'm just happy helping others achieve their goals. Yeah, I love it. Awesome. Well, Richard. Thanks for being on the show today. You got this it. is an awesome time. I appreciate it. And uh, um, when is registration for Ethan's run? When does that start? Can people sign up for that now? Do you know? It ha- actually has begun. It's on run sign up. And uh, the date is June 13th, 2020, I should say, obviously. And mm-hmm. it's in Conkle Park in Greenfield, which is very centrally located on 51st and Layton Avenue. And um, we have a new course for this year, and I know the first two years it's been a little bit on the hilly side, maybe, and it's a little less hilly this time. <laughs> Ooh, a little flatter of, course and PR, right? And it's a little more self-contained within the park because we were utilizing uh, pretty major major arterials in the city of Greenfield, and uh, so it's. The registration is up and running, Great. and we have something new this year. We, you can actually register and run virtually. You don't have to be there on site. Oh, that's great. And again, you know, it's, it's a relatively inexpensive 5K, and all the money, every dollar of it, because we get, we get sponsors to cover our operating costs. Nobody on the staff gets paid in any form or fashion. Every single dollar goes to the Ethan Monson Dupuy Recovery Fund at Aurora Healthcare. And, We're all uh, about races that give back. Right. So this it's, and this is definitely one of them. how many so, races can you think of that have raised over a hundred thousand dollars in just two short years? Yeah, that's all incredible. for the for the cause. That's incredible. So we'll link that on our website on the okay. show notes, so you guys can go register through that or um, just googling the race. Right. Great. Thanks. Sign up and then also, if you guys haven't done the Firecracker Four Miler through the Badgerland, go check that out because that's Richard's that's Richard's baby. That's right. The founder of forty second annual. Sweet. All right. Richard, thank you so much. Everyone, until next time, keep on running. Thank you for listening to the Cream City Pacers podcast. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe wherever you are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it also helps us greatly if you leave us a five-star review. Also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Cream City Pacers and at CreamCityPacers.com.